I'm Earl Fontanelle, and you are listening to The Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast, online at schwepp.net, episode 132. Immortal bodies, counterfeit spirits, and astral envelopes, other subtle bodies in later antiquity. Welcome back to part three of our little series on the subtle body in antiquity, Astral Accretions and Counterfeit Spirits. As we argued last time, it's not immediately clear that the entire range of evidence for a theory of astral accretions attaching to the soul in her descent into the body should be conflated in every case with the theory of the Ochima Pneuma. That discussion concentrated largely on philosophic Platonism and questioned some scholarship from the history of philosophy to do with late antique Platonist thinkers. In this episode, we shall be thinking much more in the realm of late antique religion, though, as has been wisely said by Garth Fowden, quote, students of late polytheism now increasingly recognize that there is no more an absolute distinction between philosophy and magic than between religion and magic. End of quote. So expect a lot of philosophical thought in this episode, as well as religious thought, and maybe even a sprinkling of the M-word. Now, before we get into our astral bodies and counterfeit spirits, let's briefly discuss two linked concepts, astral fate and the so-called Gnostic archons. We've talked about both of these things in the podcast already, but it's always good to go over material again. In our discussion with Dylan Burns on fate, free will, and providence, you'll find that over in the Schwepp Oddcast, we talked a bit about what fate was to late antique thinkers. And it was different things to different people. To some, from hardcore astrologers like Vettius Valens, to certain hermetists like the authors of Corpus Medicum 13, which we discussed in episodes 106 to 109, and she'll have more to say about in this episode. For thinkers like this, fate is really generated by the stars. And it either only operates down here in the sublunary realm, where all the powers of the stars are sort of concatenated, or in the cosmic region, so the entire region below the sphere of the fixed stars. So in the cosmos, in other words. Usually fate is seen in a sublunary context only in those who believe in astral fate. Now, outside the cosmos, where the divine realm is to be found, there is no fate. Uh, sometimes there's pronoia, providence, or sometimes there's simply the divine reality or the divine will which transcends even providence, as for example in Plotinus. Now, many people in later antiquity were very angry about this fate business and wanted to escape from it. And the only way to do that would be to escape from the stars, if you believe in astral fatalism. Essentially, you have to stop being in the cosmos, which would usually mean some form of ascent. Sometimes, of course, as for a Stoic or Vettius Valens, there is no escape from fate. For a Stoic, there is nowhere outside the cosmos to go to, right? But for our guys, escape is the goal the idea. And this is nowhere so true as among the Gnostics. Now, the term archontes, rulers, is found throughout the Gnostic dossier, and not in a good way. 
the Archontes are superhuman beings whose goal is to boss humans about and keep them trapped, sometimes in fate, sometimes in sin, sometimes in death, sometimes in matter, but always they're trying to trap you. This is a bit of a cliche about Gnosticism, actually, but it's there in the texts. Indeed, it's one of the signs that people take to mean a text is Gnostic, which may indicate a circularity of argumentation. Uh, See our interview with Michael Williams in episode 80 for more on this, the idea being that if the definition of Gnostic is that you see evil archons, then everything with evil archons is going to be Gnostic. It's not much of a definition, it's just kind of a typological tautology. Anyway, now the nature of the archons is not always explicit in our text. But there are two uses of the term archon, which were very widespread long before these Gnostics came along, and which we should keep in mind. One meaning of archon is simply ruler, like a magistrate, uh, a bureaucrat even. That's the everyday meaning, really. The other is a technical meaning in astrology. The ruling planet of a given house or a given conjunction is its archon. So, in some cases, the archontes in Gnostic texts may be referring to the corrupt political powers ruling the later Roman Empire. At other times, they are specifically referring to lower emanations from the cosmic fuck-up which occurred, creating the breach in reality which gives rise to our miserable earthly existence. And of course, the term can maybe be ambivalent and refer to both of these things, both the lower Roman archons and the higher archons. Now, these archons may be astral, or they may not be astral in a given text. It's often unclear. But sometimes they are undeniably the stars, planets, sometimes the zodiac, whose powers generate fate. So sometimes the archons really are astral evil gods. This idea has astrological origins, at least in part, and astrological ideas about fate are surely a major ingredient in what the Gnostics are doing with their archons. Not necessarily technical astrology, not necessarily knowing horoscope drawing or anything like that, but just the kind of astrological thought that has filtered into Greco-Roman thinking about fate over hundreds of years, right? Nevertheless, it's not clear to me that in every text where we find archons, they're always to be read as primarily astral powers, nor is fate always a prominent theme in Gnostic writings, though it is overarchingly a prominent theme. Now, just for a bit of comparative perspective, we might look at the more general idea of angels that we find in Christian texts. Sometimes these are just angels. They're not really defined. They're just the messengers of God. At other times, they are made explicitly astral. Each planet having an angelic intelligence each planetary sphere hosting its own rank of angels. We shall see this in our Christian esotericists going forward in the podcast. But the point is you can't always tell what kind of angels are under discussion in a given text. Oh, seven ranks of angels. That must mean these are astral angels in corresponding to the planetary spheres. Not necessarily, right? So the same thing applies to the Archontes. Sometimes they are certainly astral These are planetary evil gods or generators of fate, which amounts to the same thing. Sometimes they're just vague rulers whom the Gnostic needs to escape from, usually through some kind of purification of the self from matter and evil pneuma, which is something we'll talk about later. And sometimes they're just 
well, archons. We can't define who they are specifically any more than the appearance of the word angel in a Christian or Jewish text immediately tells us what kind of being we're meant to be dealing with. So anyway, that's fate and the archons who are sometimes related to fate. We'll be coming back to those archons later. They can be very relevant when we turn to the Apocryphon of John, the Pistis Sophia, and the Great Basilides in a moment or two. But before we get there, we should turn to Hermes Trismegistus, whom we haven't seen for a minute on the podcast, because it's always a good idea to check in with Hermes. Looking for the origins of this theory of astral accretions is a thankless task. We can't really, I think, find a single origin. But if we could date the Corpus Hermeticum, we might be able to, because we find a lot of evidence for a theory of astral accretions in some of the Hermetic texts. If we assume that they're early, as in maybe second century, and there's a lot of uncertainty here, as keen listeners will know, there's even a strong thesis from Christian Wildberg that a lot of astrological material in the Corpus Hermeticum may be the product of a star-crazed scoliast, see episode 102 of the podcast. Nevertheless, if we can date the Hermetica and their astral theories to the second century, we are probably looking at a religious school of thought which is at the head of a stream of thinking about astral accretions acquired during the descent of the soul and correspondingly purifying the self from astral accretions in the process of ascent. Now, let's survey our evidence. We have tons of astral stuff in the Hermetica. As you know, the astral motions are signs of God's excellence, and they are also astral gods themselves. In Corpus Hermeticum 3, 4, the planets are described as the cycling gods, which I imagine involves bicycles, but actually means that they cycle around in the heavens. At 11, 6 to 10, astral gods, Ogogo. This is standard Platonist cosmology based on Timaeus 41 and elsewhere in Plato. Um, not that necessarily the Hermetic authors are reading Plato, but if we want to look for the idea of astral gods in this way, we go back to the Timaeus. The Hermetica on fate. In Stobias Hermeticum 7.3 and 27, fate has power over bodies, but not souls. Very interesting. Stobias Hermeticum 12.2, fate uses the stars as its instruments, right? So there's astral fate. In Corpus Hermeticum 16, 14 to 15, we have astral daimones who control embodied humans. And we have the idea of higher and lower souls. So the higher soul, of course, is immune to the um, influence of these astral daimones. At Stobias Hermeticum 6, we have influences from the deckhands, which are the native Egyptian answer to the Near Eastern zodiac signs. At Corpus Hermeticum 4.8, we have a post-mortem ascent to God through the spheres if your soul is sufficiently reverent. So we have post-mortem ascent as a theme in at least one hermetic writing. This is interesting, but it's pretty common, right? A lot of religious movements and Platonist intellectual philosophers in this period feel that after we die, we of course are going to leave our bodies and in the form of souls, we're going to ascend to God. And in order to do that, according to the Hellenistic synthesis of cosmology that we've discussed before in the podcast, you obviously need to pass through a terrain of planetary and stellar spheres. But what we're especially interested in, I'd say in the podcast, is the ones who are interested in doing this before they die, right? Spiritual enthusiasts, the spiritual athletes, the ones who are 
impatient to get to God to leave their body and are going to do it while they're alive, the Plotinuses of the world. And for that, we need to look closely at three texts in the Corpus Hermeticum or in the Hermetic dossier with strong connections both to astral ideas and subtle body ideas. The first, of course, is Corpus Hermeticum one, the Poimandres. Now in chapter nine of that, in Copenhaver's translation, except I've changed the word mind to noose, we learn this. The noose, who is God, being androgyne and existing as life and light, by speaking gave birth to a second noose, a craftsman, Demiurgos, who as God of fire and spirit crafted seven governors. They encompass the sensible world in circles and their government is called fate. There we go. We have demiurgic creation. We have the seven planetary spheres being called governors, rulers, and they create fate. Now, so far so good or bad, but we learn later in 25 to 26 that this is kind of a bad situation. Quote, you have taught me th- all things well, O noose, just as I wanted. This is Hermes speaking to the noose, who's his teacher. But tell me again about the way up. Tell me how it happens. To this, Poimandre said, First, in releasing the material body, you give the body itself over to alteration, and the form that you used to have vanishes. To the daimon, you give over your temperament, now inactive. The body's senses rise up and flow back to their particular sources, becoming separate parts and mingling again with the energies, and feeling and longing go on toward irrational nature. Thence the human being rushes up through the cosmic framework, at the first zone surrendering the energy of increase and decrease, at the second evil machination, a device now inactive, at the third the illusion of longing, now inactive, at the fourth the ruler's arrogance, now freed of excess, At the fifth, unholy presumption and daring recklessness. At the sixth, the evil impulses that come from wealth, now inactive. And at the seventh zone, the deceit that lies in ambush. And then stripped of the effects of the cosmic framework, the human enters the region of the Ogdoad. He has his own proper power, and along with the blessed, he hymns the Father. End of quote. Now that is a really classic and very detailed description of the journey out of the cosmos and the way in which your astral accretions, for it is they, may be stripped off and kind of rendered inert through first separation from the body, shedding sensory perceptions and that sort of thing, and then going planet by planet and getting rid of the stuff the planets stuck on you. Now, another ascent-based text from the Hermetic dossier that we love very much and have spoken about in episodes 106 through 109 of the podcast with a bunch of fascinating and uh, expert scholars who really know their stuff is of course the Ogdoad reveals the Ennead also known as the treatise on the eighth and the ninth known only in the Coptic version found at Nag Hammadi Corpus 6.6. This is an amazing work as keen listeners will know or keen hermitus will know, it seems to be a depiction of a ritual, and the ritual seems to be aimed at attaining to a visionary ascent from the earth, being raised up via um, chanting of magical vowel sounds, and 
the two interlocutors reach the hebdomad, the seventh sphere, on the way to God. So there are seven spheres in a general Hellenistic synthetic cosmos. There's always an eighth sphere, which will be the sphere of the fixed stars. What's beyond that? That would be the Ennead, the ninth sphere. And in this text, we very much get the hint that the visionaries ascending to the eighth sphere might even sort of pass beyond to the ninth, or at least hang out in the eighth sphere and him the grandeur that is God who exists in the ninth. But the, the ninth sphere is very much treated under conditions of esotericism. It's not really revealed what might be there. Now, this wonderful ascent account certainly has us moving up through the heavens, and it's certainly depicted as a kind of um, spiritual rebirth. There's not much mention of astral bodies or anything like that, but you can see how, if you choose to read these two texts together, the Poimandres and the Ogdoad reveals the Ennead, you can see the Poimandres as a kind of uh, creation account, telling us how the cosmos got to be how it is, and the Ogdoad reveals the Ennead being a kind of account of actually doing the ascent that you need to do to get outside of those uh, planetary influences. Now, so far so non-subtle body-ish, in the sense that we've talked about planetary accretions quite a bit in the Hermetica, but we haven't really had anything like a subtle body. However, in Corpus Hermeticum 13, we have a truly extraordinary subtle body. In 13.3, we have the quite famous rebirth passage, which I translate as, this is the teacher again talking to the student. The teacher has acquired an invisible noetic body, which is immortal and free of the planetary influences. What can I say, my child? I can't express it except by saying this, seeing a figureless vision, that's a vision without shapes in it, some kind of non-figurative vision, which arose in myself from God's mercy. I have even gone out of myself and into an immortal body. And I am now not what I was before, but I have been conceived in noose. End of quote. Now, this speaker who has attained this new immortal body, which can only be seen by the eye of noose, says, I'm now invisible, even though you see me. In other words, when you see my body, you don't really see me. Who I am has changed. And at 14, we find that this body is made of the 10 powers who have driven out the 12. Now, interpreters generally rally around the idea here, and I fully agree, that the 12 powers are the 12 signs of the zodiac. And they're being used here as, well, I don't know, as a shorthand for, or really as the literal description of astral fate and the um, human condition here on Earth as constrained by astral influences. But the ten powers are described as coming down from God. The ten powers, the divine decad, drive out the twelve powers. And the twelve are vices. They are described. And we even get a first-person description of, like, I can feel them fleeing one by one. They're being driven out by the ten. So here again, we seem to have astral accretions being driven out in this case, not by what's described as an ascent, but by a descent of grace from God in the form of the Ten Powers. But what's really interesting is that the result of this is that the Hermetic Adept obtains a new immortal noetic body while still alive here on Earth. That's our Hermetic dossier. 
You can see ideas of astral accretion, ideas of just astral influence and fate, fatalism, to do with the zone here below the stars, and a very, very interesting and quite unique idea about uh, immortalization and deification in the form of an invisible noetic body, all kind of linked by various uh, thematic strands. But although many good attempts have been made to unify all of these uh, passages into a single hermetic worldview, it's not immediately clear from the text that they need to be unified in that way. I leave that to the listener who might want to go back to our Hermetica episodes and, and look at some of the scholarship here, Mahe, Boll, and Anna van der Kershov, and many other recent scholars are, are really working on that project, trying to piece together the pieces of the Hermetic puzzle. Now, that Hermetic dossier is a very good source for astral accretions and influences in a, I think, safe to say, religious context. But what if we turn back to philosophy, not on the assumption that all of this astral stuff necessarily applies to the theory of the Ohima we discussed last time? Well, we definitely find evidence for a developed theory of astral accretions in the late Platonists, Proclus and Macrobius, writing in the 5th century, as well as Servius, a writer who put together a fascinating line-by-line commentary on Virgil's Aeneid, which has little gems of astral lore scattered throughout it. All of these guys think that as the soul descends through the cosmos, it acquires garments or envelopes at each stellar sphere, and that these bring with them pathe, character traits, like a propensity to wrath will be picked up in the sphere of Aries-Mars, the quality of generation is always picked up in the sphere of the moon, and so on and so forth. I won't get into the details, but you can definitely find comparative lists of all the different astral um, combinations of planetary ordering, planetary sphere, and equivalent pathos in um, the works of Culianu or Flamon in the recommended reading to this episode. Now, Flamon says, and Flamon is a scholar who's especially elucidated the works of Macrobius, Quote, actually, the most interesting evidence for this doctrine comes from the late Neoplatonists like Macrobius, Proclus, and Servius. I think that one can reasonably posit a common source for Macrobius and Proclus in Numenius, whom they knew from Porphyry. Which doesn't necessarily mean that Numenius is the doctrine's inventor. Ion Culianu thinks that all of this goes back to Egyptian astrology. We won't broach the thorny question of sources here. End of quote. Well... <laughs> We'll come back to Kulianu, as he has a lot to say about subtle bodies and astral influences, but is maybe just a little too creative in the way he smushes everything together into a single theory. The question here, and I know that our listeners are gagging to know the answer to, is does this theory go back to Numenius? We don't have, in the surviving fragments of Numenius, an account of astral accretions. But we do know that he gives a highly astralized account on the descent and ascent of the soul, which involves literally moving through the tropics of Cancer and Capricorn, and the Milky Way is very important. We saw this in our episode discussing Porphyry's On the Cave of the Nymphs, and the the relevant passages can be found in On the Caves of the Nymphs 22 to 23 and 29, and these are also to be found in Diplas's collection of fragments of Numenius. Now, Here we have in Numenius some geography, or rather stellography, of the terrain of ascent and descent. You have to pass through these gates in the sky 
which have to do seemingly, based on Macrobius, with the flattened X that we see in the sky where the ecliptic meets the stellar equator. But where are the astral vestments or accretions? We don't see them actually in Numenius. We do see them in a big way in Macrobius. But is Macrobius dependent on Numenius? Well, there is a wide scholarly agreement that Macrobius' most important source in On the Dream of Scipio is Porphyry. And we know that Porphyry loves his Numenius, uses Numenius all the time. So there are arguments to be made that this idea must go back to Numenius. Perhaps we'll have time to get into this a bit more when we get to Macrobius. But for now, let's just quote a lovely bit of Macrobius. This is On the Dream of Scipio, Book 1, 12, 13 to 14, in Stahl's translation. The soul, having started on its downward course from the intersection of the Zodiac and the Milky Way to the successive spheres lying beneath, as it passes through these spheres, not only takes on the aforementioned envelopment in each sphere by approaching a luminous body, but also acquires each of the attributes that it will exercise later. In the sphere of Saturn, it obtains reason and understanding, etc., all the way through the planets in the normal Chaldean order. I won't give the whole list of Pathé, but note here that, very importantly, Macrobius does connect the luminous body, which is described as an envelope, a kind of ochima pneuma, basically, with this, and says you also acquire each of the attributes that will, it will exercise later. So the process of obtaining increasingly dense pneumatic envelopes to the soul happens at the same time as acquiring these attributes. It doesn't say that they're the same process. When we turn to Proclus, we shall see that he also thinks much the same, and he also doesn't make them the same process. You acquire astral accretions, which he calls vestments, or chitones, clothing, uh, shirts, <laughs> as you come down, but you also acquire not one but two soul vehicles. So these aren't the same thing in the Platonists, in these late Platonists who have a very detailed theory of how all this stuff works. So that's my presentation of what I take to be the most important evidence for trying to tell a story of the theory of astral accretions in philosophic Platonism. Now, listeners who want to be less conservative here, or less boring perhaps, can maybe say, ah, but what about the increasingly moist astral bodies you acquire in Porphyry? And what about the astral bodies found in Plotinus's theory? Though he doesn't talk about them much, he definitely talks about them. And I would say, you're right, gentle listener, and you may well want to read all of this stuff into a single model. However, I would also say that if we go to the sources like Proclus and Macrobius that we've just quoted, what we find is that they actually distinguish between the process of gaining what I call astral accretions, which are sometimes called garments, sometimes called envelopes, and so on, and the process of gaining pneumatic vehicles which is often a different thing. Sometimes none of this is described as a body. Sometimes it's all described as bodies. So there's a lot of different ways of looking at this stuff, or at least of describing it. Now, does a pneumatic body need to be astral in some way? This is a question that brings us back to the work of Juan Culianu, the eccentric and somewhat wonderful scholar of religions who wrote more about this uh, ascent of the soul and subtle body stuff at the end of the 20th century than practically anyone else. Unfortunately, or frustratingly maybe, his books are brilliant, but also full of dodgy citations and hidden editorial choices, 
which when you go back to the sources reveal themselves not to be as self-evident as he claims. So for Kulianu, the theory we're discussing of astrolocretions acquired in descent, which you will then have to shed if your soul is going to ascend back to God, is the same idea as the Ochema Pneuma, which we discussed last time. Astral bodies, astral envelopes, vehicle of the soul, it's all one thing. And another thing he considers one thing, with his already pretty complex um, set of ideas, is the counterfeit spirit, or antimimon pneuma, found in Gnostic texts, or more specifically found in Basilides, the Pistisophia, and the Apocryphon of John, among many other places. So, by mushing all this stuff together, Kulianu says, in an offhand sort of way, this theory, the theory that we find in, certainly in Porphyry, certainly in Macrobius, and certainly in Proclus, and perhaps also as far back as Numenius, the theory that as the soul passes through the stars, it picks up accretions in its descent into the body. This theory goes all the way back at least to Basilides. And all the Gnostic counterfeit pneumas and similar ilk, which we'll talk about in a minute, are just the other side of the coin represented by the quite positive takes on subtle bodies found, for example, in Plotinus and Porphyry. So the Gnostics are talking about the same thing, a sort of extra body, but they think it's an evil, bad, negative thing. Okay, back up, Kulianu. Let's turn to Arbacilides' source, first of all. In Clement's Stromates Book 2, 112, Clement says, quote, Those around Basilides are accustomed to call the passions attachments, pros artemata, and say that these exist as certain pneumata, spirits, pneumas, according to their essence. Having been attached to the rational soul through some disorder or primal breach, and that still other bastard and foreign types of pneumata grow parasitically upon these, like pneumata of wolf, ape, lion, billy goat. Now, Kulianu cites this passage without citing it, without giving the text, as evidence for astrolocretions in Basilides. What is Basilides saying? He is saying that these passions are attached to us, prosartemata, which does seem a little bit like a pneumatic accretion to the soul that we might have got in the descent through the spheres, right? He talks about a primal disorder or breach, which definitely feels Gnostic, right? And then he talks about these other bastard foreign types of pneuma, which kind of get stuck on to this original foreign pneuma that we have. Now, here's the problem. He doesn't mention anything astral. Maybe the weird references to animals, wolf, ape, lion, billy goat, are references to constellations or zodiacal signs, except there's no ape in the zodiac, nor is there a wolf. I don't feel anything astral here. But if you want to read this reference to a spiritual attachment, a prosartema pneumaticon, as talking about exactly the same thing as you find throughout the Apocryphon of John, where you really do have a lot of emphasis in all the four versions we have on the counterfeit spirit as this thing within us that we have to get rid of because it attaches us to the lower world and makes us a slave to the archons. And you want to bring in the Pistis Sophia. The Pistis Sophia is a text from antiquity that we haven't talked about much in 
the podcast, but it's one of the few works in the Gnostic dossier that we've known about longer, scholars have known about since the 18th century, because it's in a text held in Oxford called the Askew Codex, which ironically from its name isn't actually all that askew. It's it's in pretty good shape. It's just missing two sheets, unlike the Nag Hammadi codices, which are much more askew, as it were. He's taking the idea from the Pistis Sophia that the Antimimon Pneuma is acquired through the influence of five Archontes, assuming that that's astral, and that may well be astral, gentle listener, but I'm not an expert enough to pronounce on the matter, and whether the Archontes in the Apocryphon of John are fully astral or astral in the normal sense of, um, if there is a normal sense for this sort of thing in an, in the antique worldview, I kind of feel like this is an open question. It's also an open question as to whether Basilides, the Pista Sophia, and the Apocryphon of John should all be read together in this way. So I present this idea of the counterfeit pneuma as indeed a dark side to the antique idea of the subtle body. And we do indeed in Basilides have a very early reference to a subtle body in a very clear sense. He's talking about extra attachments, which are pneumata, so they must probably be bodies in, in some actual physical sense, especially when, when we consider how early Basilides is writing. They're evil, right? They're bad. You have to purge yourself of them um, in order to have the pure pneuma, which can return to God. So this is a very early and very interesting attestation to a subtle body, a pneumatic subtle body, which has a long life in a lot of texts which are known as Gnostic, which is a bad thing that you have to get rid of, which we haven't yet seen in our sources. Is it astral? I don't think it is in Basilides, but we don't have enough of Basilides to say. It probably is in the Pista Sophia. I'm guessing it is in the Apocryphon of John as well, but it doesn't necessarily have to be, and it certainly doesn't have to follow the model of astral accretions acquired step by step as you enter into the cosmos that we we definitely see kind of laid out in a very clear way in both the hermetic texts that we've discussed and in the Platonists from at least Porphyry onward. Now we turn to part four on the hermetic immortal body and the Christian resurrection body. So we've been talking about the eschatological role of the subtle body and the Platonists a little bit last time. The Ochima Pneuma is very, very important for the post-mortem fate of the soul, according to some thinkers. For Porphyry, it survives bodily death, and you basically need it to get back out of the cosmos. Once you leave the cosmos and get to the noetic level, the elements of which the Ochima was constructed will just get recycled back into the cosmos as you might expect of any bodily thing, which eventually always gets recycled, right? When we get to Proclus, we'll see that he has a very, very detailed step-by-step uh, -step analysis of how this happens. We have two ochema, ochemata, and they, um, they play roles both in the, making the soul even able to be in the cosmos, making it in cosmios, and then in getting out again. So there is an eschatological role to the subtle body in some of the Platonists. Let's talk about the eschatological role of another kind of body. Now, we've seen the invisible, immortal body of the Corpus Hermeticum 13. It's very difficult to say what that means to have an immortal body. But one thing you can say for sure, it means you're not going to die. That's what immortal means. So 
the eschatological uh, significance of the immortal body is in the name. Let's talk about the Christian resurrection body. Now, this is something we haven't talked about yet in covering Christianity, and our coverage of Christianity in the Schweppes has been very patchy, but a lot of people might not even know that one of the essential doctrines of Christianity is that at an event at the end of this universe, this world order, when God will, well, bring on what's known as the apocalypse, right? Based on the the title of the apocalypse of John in the Bible, which sort of tells the story of that dreaded but wondrous event at the end of time. When God brings on the apocalypse, one of the things he's going to do is give everyone who is worthy of redemption a immortal body. So we have two main scriptural sources for this. One is from Paul and one is from the so-called synoptic gospels. Let's talk about Paul first, because Paul might actually be the earliest of these texts. We look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body. That's the letter to the Philippians, 3.20.21. Someone will ask you, how are the dead raised up, and with what body do they come? This is first letter to the Corinthians. Well, the answer you should give them is that we started out with a natural body, physikonsoma, but we're going to be raised up as a spiritual body, a pneumaticonsoma. It will be incorruptible. So this is Paul. It's very clear that Paul thinks that at the end of time, God is going to raise us up and we're going to have a body, not a soul. We're in a different worldview here. We're not in a Platonist worldview where the body is the last thing you'd need in a final redemptive encounter with God. No, for Paul, just like for Basilides, incidentally, the part of you that is going to kind of dwell in God's presence is your pneuma. Obviously not the antimimon pneuma, the good pneuma. Now, let's look at the Synoptic Gospels in Matthew 22.30. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as angels in heaven. At Mark 12.25 and at Luke 20.35-36, we have very similar uh, statements about angelification. You cannot die anymore. You become an angel or an angel-like being, and you are resurrected at the end of time. Now, if you're a Christian in the early days trying to put all this together and come up with a doctrine... It's very clear from Paul that you're going to have not a free-floating soul or a soul liberated from the body, but you're going to have a spiritual body. And the spiritual body is going to be something like an angel. Okay, so far so good. Now, this presented a lot of theoretical difficulties for people, especially for people educated in Platonist philosophy, like the great Origen and St. Augustine, because... To those educated in Platonist philosophy, the idea of pneuma, which is some kind of a body, or even a pneumatic body, being somehow superior to soul or or being eternal, was just absurd. Everyone knew, everyone of a certain stamp of intellectual in, in the Roman Empire knew, that souls last forever and are immortal, bodies do the opposite thing. We know that the great origin, um, in many ways, supported the positions of about Christian dogma that would become eventually known as Orthodox. However, we also know he ran into trouble for some of his positions. We have two interesting bits of evidence from Origen about subtle body beliefs which are relevant to this story. The first comes from the Contracelsum. In this passage, he's actually in a very interesting conversation with um, refuting Celsus, in which Celsus has seemingly described 
Christian uh, miraculous post-mortem visions as a case of sort of mass hysteria, Origen says, ah, but Plato himself says that um, shadowy apparitions of men already dead have appeared to some people around tombs, which he says in the Phaedo 81D, which is sort of the platonic proof text for the existence of ghosts, which we saw Porphyry explaining through the soul's pneuma getting so moist through its attachment to earthly things that it actually becomes visible like a kind of misty ghost in on the cave of the nymphs well origin is also familiar with this doctrine although he refers to it as the augoides soma being responsible for apparitions that is the light body so we have a light body he doesn't make much of this but he definitely thinks we have one now this is where it gets very interesting with origin Origen, of course, believes that we must have a resurrection body. And like everyone else at the time, he's trying to figure out what that might be like. Now, we don't have Origen's pronouncement on this. And we know that our, our ver- the version of Origen's on first principles, which survives, is a bodlerized version translated into Latin by one Rufinus, who, among other things, is trying to convince a Latin-speaking audience that this guy Origen that you've heard maybe some bad things about, actually is super orthodox and we should dig in because he's the greatest Christian intellectual, which was true. But we have very strong reasons to think that Rufinus kind of smoothed out some of Origen's uh, less acceptable doctrines. And there is some evidence or some theory that Rufinus may have suppressed the doctrine that Origen believed that the resurrection bodies will be spherical. Now, first of all, why would he have believed the resurrection body would be spherical? Well, look no further than many other Platonists, like Plotinus, whose noetic body is probably spherical, uh, Iamblichus, whose um, nematic body is indeed spherical. The idea being simply that the sphere is the most perfect shape, and spherical motion is the motion proper to soul. The proof text here is, of course, the Timaeus, when the Demiurge creates the cosmos and sets it all whirling around, it moves in its proper spherical fashion. Uh, We could talk a lot here about Platonic and Aristotelian theory of motion, but we won't do that because it would take forever. But at any rate, Origen, we think, argued that the resurrection body was spherical. Now, we, we have a letter of the Emperor Justinian, to the patriarch Minas, stating that Origen affirmed that in the resurrection, the bodies will be spheroidae, spherical. And in the Council of Constantinople in 543 CE, at which occasion Origen, the great intellectual, the great scholar, and the great esotericist of early orthodoxy, was anathematized on a number of points. In other words, the church council said, he's wrong about this. He's wrong about this. He's wrong about this. This stuff is not orthodox. Point 10 was that he maintained that the resurrection bodies would be spherical. So there we have an introduction to the Christian idea of the resurrection body, which to be honest, Christians have already been talking about for several hundred years in the chronology of the podcast. So we should, should have brought it up before, but we're bringing it up now in the context of subtle bodies. Now, is the resurrection body subtle? It sure is. It's it's pneumatic, according to Paul, which already means it's subtle. It's also like an angel, according to the Gospels, 
which opens up a whole other can of worms if you're trying to figure out exactly what all that means. The resurrection body will return in the podcast. And of course, bodily resurrection is also a doctrine found in the Quran. And so there'll be a huge return to speculations about the nature of the resurrection body, among other very interesting speculations about subtle bodies more generally in the Islamicate world and in Islamicate esotericism. The counterfeit spirit will also be back in the podcast as we discuss some more so-called Gnostic ideas. And last but not least, astral accretions will be back in a big way. And I hope that our quasi-systematic look at the evidence for the idea of astral accretions in this episode has been helpful to kind of put a timestamp on the stuff. Obviously, we can't say who thought of it first. Kulianu thinks a lost technical hermeticum called the Panaretos would have been the origin for this doctrine. But his approach to all this stuff is so sloppy and mushing it all into the same basket that I find it very difficult to take him very seriously, especially when he's talking about a text that we don't even have anymore. And I think Numenius is probably a link in the chain, to be honest. I think Flamand and other interpreters are probably right. Certainly Porphyry is a major, important spreader of this doctrine in the late 3rd century into later thinking. So the idea that the stars have influence on humans is very, very widespread in late antiquity in one form or another, and actually really until the early modern period. But the specific model that the soul in entering into the cosmos obtains astral influences that it sort of wears like shirts as it descends into the body. And the body is in a way just the final one of these accretions is um, a very specific model, which we, for the prevalence of which we owe a lot, I'd say, to Porphyry, if only as a transmitter. That's been a a two-episode series on subtle body ideas in late antiquity with four parts. I hope it's been helpful and interesting, if a bit heavy on the detail. Next time, we're going to do another thematic episode, but one which is a bit lighter. So join us next time for our first episode introducing the weird and wonderful world of theurgy. And until then, you know what to do. (laughs) 